Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, recorded on January the 9th, we look at Canada and the world in 2024 with the Honourable Jean Charest, the Honourable Peter McKay, and the Honourable John Manley. Jean, Peter, and John have all served Canada as elective legislators and cabinet officers. They remain active in public policy and public life, including their service on the CJAI Advisory Council. Jean served as Premier of Quebec. Jean and John served as Deputy Prime Ministers. John held various portfolios, including industry, foreign affairs, and finance. Peter served as Minister for Atlantic Canada Opportunities, Foreign Affairs, Defence, Justice, and as Attorney General. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. For listeners, we begin 2024 with the war in Ukraine looking to go into a third year. There is no end in sight amid fears that Western resolve to continue supporting Ukraine with arms and money is flagging. The Hamas invasion of Israel in October and Israel's war on Hamas has left millions displaced in Gaza, disrupted shipping in the Red Sea, and as U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken warns, the conflict threatens to metastasize into the wider Middle East. The conflict has divided the Western publics and widened the gap between the West and the rest. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping daily sends PLA ships and planes into Taiwanese waters and airspace while speaking of the inevitable integration of Taiwan into the mainland by force if necessary. The doomsday clock was reset at 90 seconds to midnight, closest to global catastrophe it has ever been since scientists concerned about nuclear arms created it in 1947. The reasons for the reset, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the increased risk of nuclear escalation, and the continuing threats posed by climate crisis and the breakdown of global norms and institutions needed to mitigate risks associated with advancing technologies like AI and biological threats such as COVID-19. Our situation is further complicated by the continuing movement of peoples because of internal strife and climate change. Last year was the hottest year ever recorded and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says we have passed from the era of global warming into that of global boiling. Then there is a divide between rich and poor. Guterres tweeted last week that inequality is tearing our world apart. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees reports more than 100 million people worldwide are now forcibly displaced at a time when the welcome mat for migrants has been withdrawn. Concerns about migration are a central feature of elections in Europe and the United States. For the first time in years, pollsters report Canadian opinion is shifting against immigration amidst concerns about housing, schooling, healthcare, and jobs. 2024 is the biggest election year in history, with countries representing nearly half the world's population heading to the polls. Bangladesh just voted. Taiwanese will cast their ballots in the coming days. In the coming months, the United States, United Kingdom, Pakistan, Indonesia, India, South Africa, Mexico, and Russia, and other countries will also go to the polls. But how much faith do people have in democracy or elections? For the first time in two decades, there are now more closed autocracies in the world than there are liberal democracies. And increasingly, political polarization and populism puts the liberal part of liberal democracy in doubt. So let's get started. And Jean, I'm gonna put the question first to you. And I'll begin with a question that I put to visiting political directors. What worries you the most? Putin conquers Ukraine, Z 
invades Taiwan or Trump returns as president? <laughs> well, that's not a very good menu of choices, uh, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hello to John Manley, who uh, I'm delighted to see and, uh, on, the, on my screen, and also Peter McKay, and two very good friends, and, and to share this platform with Colin. Uh, you, you know, the choices are not very palatable, but I'm going to put it in two ways. For Domestically for Canada in the short term, certainly the election in the United States is the number one concern. And if Mr. Trump is to return to the presidency, then we have a whole new slate uh, of issues in front of us, including his promise, his commitment to impose 10% tariffs on everything, plus 10% on whatever's there, and uh, a trade agenda that would be devastating for Canada. Now, whether or not he would exempt uh, Canada and Mexico, given the fact that he himself renegotiated the previous trade agreement that's coming up for renegotiation in 2026 is another story. But add to that that Trump would be, I think, very disruptive to the rest of the world. It's a question mark of whether he would continue to be part, uh, make the Americans part of NATO, uh, his position on Ukraine, his position on the Middle East. Uh, there's a whole host of issues on trade in general. With China in particular, he would enter in a whole new round of what he calls decoupling. For example, he's a, he, they've invoked the fact that he would just cut off trade in pharmaceuticals, the steel industry, and electronics. These are all things that would have a very disruptive effect on the world. But I, I want to add something else, Colin. I, in the immediate, right now, internationally, I'd be very concerned about what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, in uh, in the Gulf, uh, the threat of uh, Hamas, of uh, the Houthis, of uh, of Hezbollah, uh, Iran. Iran has started up its uh, nuclear program, its enrichment of uranium, and could very well have a, a nuclear uh, capability uh, in the short term. I mean, this is all going to uh, really upset uh, the balance of world power if that were to happen. And there's a real possibility that it may. And so uh, from that perspective, I, I think we need to keep our eye on the ball on what effect it has on global supply chains. The fact that the uh, now the uh, whether it's the, uh, the Suez Canal or Pan Panama Canal are being uh, disrupted. So so those are the things that I, I'm, I'm worried about for 2025. Oh, those are all real, Peter. I've given you sort of three choices, but as John, or as uh, Jean has done, the, you know the threats are broader than that. So, how do you see things? Yeah, thanks, Colin, and and to Jean and, and John, uh, very best for this year. And as Jean Charest has just laid out, this is a, a smorgasbord of, uh, of stormy weather. Um, and of the choices that you've laid out, there there are enough to keep anybody up at night. But the one that worries me frankly, the most, if I have to pick from that list, uh, is the sometimes described as imminent invasion of Taiwan by China. We know to some degree the, the harsh reality of what has happened uh, as Russian forces under the direction of the dictator Putin went into Ukraine. Uh, how jarring that has been. There's, there's uh, references you will see of up to a half a million people now uh, dead or displaced as a result of that conflict. However, the concern of an invasion in Taiwan is not unlike what's happening in the Middle East, the fear of a much broader conflict. 
Uh, I was in Taiwan just about a year ago, and they, they seem to be demonstrating great resolve. Uh, yet at the same time, the, the entire region could go up in flames. The, the threat that China poses to all of the neighboring countries in the Asia Pacific, the elevated rhetoric, but more chilling is the actual presence of military uh, in the Taiwan Strait, um, in other contested waters and around contested uh, islands within the South Pacific. And the concern that I have first and foremost amongst all of those chilling realities is that with the semiconductor production coming out of Taiwan, I cannot see the United States being able to do anything other than intervene, uh, which is catastrophic in terms of the global implications of a conflict between China and the United States of America and NATO countries more broadly. And so these are extremely sobering issues. Um, Jean has rightly touched on, on the Middle East to, to add to that list. And that is also a, a massive concern, particularly what Iran has been doing, what they've always been doing now for years in terms of using proxies, the, the elevated, the heightened uh, concern that other countries as well, uh, some of which are obvious in terms of Lebanon and the presence of Hezbollah, but other countries in the region also becoming involved. And that, uh, that could also quickly spread out into a, a regional conflict, which would draw other countries in as well. So those are all nightmare scenarios. Um, talking about it this early in the new year, I guess to try to put some kind of an optimistic look forward is that, you know, we have people who are dedicating all their waking hours at trying to de-escalate and trying to find some forums to to have reasonable discussions. But these are incredibly challenging times, to say the least, probably the most challenging that we've seen in our lifetime. John, would you come in on this? The, the three questions, but uh, it is really looking at the threat assessments facing the world. Yeah, I, I well, and I, first of all, how do you say Happy New Year after those uh, <laughs> descriptions? <laughs> Let's may we survive. You know, um, I, my view on this is that uh, there there's a lot of things to worry about. The one that I worry about the most, and the the way our you know Ian Bremmer put it in his annual risk update was this: there's 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 Russia versus Ukraine, there's Israel versus Hamas, and then there's the really big one: the United States versus itself. Um, because you've got a you've got a superpower uh, upon whom uh, many of us rely. Uh, Canada certainly relies for for our trade. Uh, still a huge portion of our international trade. We rely upon it as uh, really our the lead partner in the Western Alliance. It is the foundation upon which NATO is built. Um, and it is deeply, deeply divided against itself. And uh, I put that in slightly different terms than the worry about Donald Trump returning, although uh, that fills me with great anxiety. Um, and not for economic reasons, uh, some of the things that, that, that Jean spelled out in terms of the, the, the 
the, the possible positions that he takes. And we, we saw that the last time that some of those get mitigated against the, you know, the grim reality of, uh, of what, you know, trade flows actually are. I mean, he was at the verge of, of, of uh, canceling NAFTA, giving the six months notice when his secretary of agriculture pointed out to him that that would be very devastating to him in the key Midwest states uh, where trade with, with Canada was so important. So it's, it, what I worry about more is the damage to global institutions that a Donald Trump presidency would restore. But I, you know, there's a piece of me that thinks that the, you know, that the Republican Party may well realize that possibly the only candidate that they could put up against Joe Biden that would lose is Donald Trump. Because he is so remarkably polarizing. Yes, he has dedicated supporters. I mean, let's face it, he's the leader of a mob. And that mob is frightening, but uh, it also uh, frightens the people that will be motivated to get out and vote against him. And when you see the governor of New Hampshire, Sununu, come out in favor of Nikki Haley, you see the Koch brothers announce that their funding is going behind Nikki Haley. When you notice some of the other candidates for the Republican nomination sort of fading uh, back into the into the undergrowth, you have to think that there may well be some surprises as the primary season gets underway. Uh, not so much in Iowa, which isn't that significant, but when when the Republican primary race comes to New Hampshire, watch that one closely, because if Donald Trump shows any vulnerability there, then the whole dynamic of the campaign could change. And I don't know, you, it's always a risky business to call elections very far in advance. But I'm of the view that a Nikki Haley leading the Republican ticket uh, would be almost unbeatable in the current circumstances. And my hope is that she would at least be able to bring some uni unifying um, uh, breezes to what is a hopelessly divided country at this point. So I'll end slightly optimistically by dispensing with the biggest risk in the hope that uh, the events will, will take care of it and we'll find ourselves in a better place when we get to Inauguration Day 2025 than we found ourselves four years earlier. We certainly would all agree with that. And then you've put the uh, underline the elections this year. My next question, I'm going to ask Peter to lead on this one. Given the pressures on democracies in this year of elections, everything from populism, polarization, misinformation, disinformation, is there something that Canada can do or should be doing at home and abroad? Because we too face these challenges. I'm tempted just to say show up, um, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to sound glib. We uh, we absolutely, and I and I suspect that Jean and John would uh, would tend to agree that we have to demonstrate some of our historical and forward leaning uh, foreign policy for our voice to be heard. We we don't seem to have, in in simple terms, lived up to our reputation of punching above our weight and and intervening with with thoughtful, helpful, reasonable 
well thought out uh, interventions at at either you know global bodies or uh, you know our presence being felt in in a way that actually lends uh, both credibility to to what we're trying to accomplish, whether it's de-escalating some of these conflicts or whether it's trying to rally around worthwhile causes. I'm also, you know, quite certain, and I know we're going to talk about this a little later in the broadcast, I, I'm sure, but what the world is looking for in many cases right now in these challenging times, and Jean mentioned uh, supply chains, is food and energy. And Canada surely uh, has the capacity to provide much more to many parts of the world that are in need. We have a you know, we have CETA, we have free trade with the United States and many other countries, and we're not capitalizing, quite frankly, in my opinion, on those trade agreements. You know, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement with European Union, um, had we been able to ex export liquefied natural gas to many of those European countries, imagine the revenues that would be flowing into our country right now if we were able to get... Uh, that important energy project to Tidewater. It's uh, it's remarkable to me how in the last few years, the futility of shutting down pipelines has played to our disadvantage and to the disadvantage of other countries who've come here seeking our help, including Germany and Japan, uh, major and important allies. And and we've been unable to uh, to meet that challenge to our, in my view, everlasting shame. So I would say capitalizing more on our ability to trade and uh, and to bring vital, uh, important products, natural resource products to market uh, would help. And I think just absolutely leaning in and being um, more helpful as we have been in the past in tackling some of these big diplomatic brouhaha's in addition to the actual military conflicts that are underway. We haven't Frankly, and my last point would be we haven't even lived up to the commitments that we've made to Ukraine in terms of sending them the necessary air defense missiles and, and uh, defense systems. That, again, does enormous reputational harm to our country when we make those types of commitments and then don't follow through at the critical point. If we can't support our allies, it uh, it's very disappointing to them, but it also fuels the fire for our adversaries when they see that Canada is uh, is stuck in neutral on these important issues around security. John, Peter has anticipated what was going to be my last question when that was the point that, that you once observed that when the check came, Canada headed to the washroom. Um, my question was going to be, are we pulling our weight? And Peter's certainly given us a sense of that. So I put the question to you. Uh, when the check comes, are we at the table or are we still heading to the washroom? Well, it depends if we want to tell somebody that their table manners are impolite. I will stay for that, for sure, because we're really good at telling people how to conduct themselves. Um, my, my concern is, is, is really reflects Peter's comments that Canada's influence has waned in the world, in part because we've, we've we somehow arrogated to ourselves a sense of, of grand importance uh, that and, and much of this stems from domestic politics, I admit, but that suggests that, you know, the world waits with bated breath for what Canada has to say to them. And 
I'm, I'm sorry to tell my fellow citizens, but if that was ever the case, it certainly isn't now. Um, where Canada was most effective was when we found ways to be useful. We could talk to everybody. We were among the first to talk to the communist Chinese before China opened up. Uh, we were always active in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. We were, we could be a bridge. Um, we were, we were present in Africa where as, uh, as the prime minister, prime minister Kretchen used to like to say, we, we had two things going for us. One, we were never a colonial power and two, we could speak French. Um, you know, we were a useful country. He also told me one time when I became foreign minister, he said, you know, sometimes Canada's role is that we get into rooms that the Americans can't get into, and then we tell them what happened in that room. And I, I feel that we have somehow lost our bearing. Uh, we didn't often, we weren't often the chair of some of these international organizations or the secretary general or the, but we were often the rapporteur or the second, or we played key roles. Um, if we held the pen, we could influence outcomes better than some of the sometimes chairs of, you know, UN and other committees could do. And we seem to have decided that we would rather, we would rather carry a soapbox with us and get up on it and, and tell people how they need to do things differently, rather than finding ways to insinuate us ourselves into these many complex and difficult situations in order to uh, exert influence at a level that's maybe lower profile, but probably a lot more effective. And you add to that, Colin, the point that, you know, it, 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 seemed, um, it seemed a little unfair, I think, when I uttered it back in 2003, that, you know, we, we sometimes like being at the, at the G7 or G8 table uh, until the, the waiter brought the bill and then we'd find a reason to go to the washroom. Uh, but whether it's in our, our diplomacy, in our development assistance or in our defense spending, we have failed to measure up to global standards. And, you know, we got away with the peace dividend as, as much of the Western Alliance, Alliance did uh, following the, the failure of the Soviet Union. Um, and we had that, you know, unipolar decade when it was the United States and nobody else. Well, that day is gone and we've collected that dividend over and over and over again. And I'm sorry to say, because it imposes limitations on other budgetary priorities, many of which Canadians much prefer to defense spending, but defense and security is now an issue that we have to contend with. Russia is one of our bordering neighbors. Um, and we, I think, have to recognize the fact that, uh, that we've got to start picking up the tab for some of that and making sure we insinuate ourselves in a world which increasingly is uh, disrupted and, and, and risky. Jean, I put the question to you, are we pulling our weight? Well, the very short answer, of course, is no. And uh, there's very wise, I think, words from John and, and Peter. 
Uh, but and let me add my own view of the context in which we are right now. Geopolitical power is more dispersed now in the world than it has ever been. And John Manley mentioned the unipolar decade, which is over. And, uh, and there is a whole movement out there and some of the led by good actors and bad actors and about changing this, uh, this balance of power in the world. And, uh, and what we're looking at is a multipolar world for the good or bad of it. And, and the pressures that are coming from that, uh, from that perspective. Now, all of this is happening, by the way, in 2024, which is the geopolitical uh, year for the world. Uh, the election campaigns you referred to in major countries, 50 countries, 60%, uh, 2 billion people will be voting, and that's 60% of the world's GDP. It's huge. What will be happening in 2024? So it's a geopolitical year in a world where where geopolitical power is more dispersed than ever before, and where there's a new uh, a willingness for a new uh, sharing, power sharing in the world, if you look at the longer term. Now, in all of this, Canada has lost its narrative. We've lost our narrative. Why are we out there? What is it that uh, we want to accomplish? And it's as though all our energy, time, and, uh, and thoughts were sucked in by our relationship with the United States and that we weren't able to pay attention. In the meantime, what are the Americans saying? What did Trump say early on after his first foreign trip abroad? There is no international community. Richard Haas, who was the uh, chair of the Council for Foreign Relations, just retired, gave an interview in the Wall Street Journal where he says the same thing. There is from the perspective of the United States, there is no international community. And yet we continue to talk about multilateralism and how, how are we gonna express, so that's where we are. Now, I wanna be positive also and look at the things that Canada has to offer the world. We're in this extraordinary uh, tra energy transition and we have all the strategic minerals that the world needs to be able to do that transition. It's all there in Canada. And if the Americans, when they look at Canada right now, what do they see? I mean, that's what they see, strategic minerals. Can we develop them? It takes 15 years to, between the moment you discover a mine and you can open one in Canada. Those are some of the issues. Among the other things we have is energy, as Peter so correctly pointed out. I mean, we got it so wrong. It's the Americans now that are supplying Europe in LNG and developing those resources. When we had all those, and we have them, we're the fourth biggest producer of oil in the world, sixth biggest producer of natural gas, and natural gas is a transition form of transition energy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to replace coal. So, I mean, we got that wrong and now we have to try to figure out. And agri-food, put that together. The question would be, and we've done CETA, we've done CPTPP, we've done the trade. We're now negotiating a trade agreement with ASEAN, which is good news. We should be paying more attention to the Gulf. Africa was mentioned where we're missing in action. Peter, you're quite right. We just don't show up in Africa. While there's great opportunities for, the, for us and, and need for us to be there. So just showing up would be part of it. But what do we have to offer? Strategic minerals, energy, agri-food. But I'd go further than that. Look at all our pension funds. Canadian pension funds, Colin, are put together, are the most important investors in infrastructure in the world. And we have a great brand recognized for its integrity, its competency. We give social license. And the energy transition, that's an extraordinary opportunity for Canada. 
when are we going to be able to tie that together to say this is what we have to offer as opposed to trade agreements, sermons, and, uh, and lecturing, and say, how can we make these resources useful to the rest of the world and, and also useful to us? One last word. The, if, if there's one foreign policy and domestic policy that intersects, it's the North. And it's about climate change. It's about security. It's about fulfilling our duties relative to NATO. That is something that in a very short term, John is right, Peter. I mean, defense spending, it's all intersects in one critically urgent file that we should be paying attention to. And, and that's Canada's Arctic, which I, I would hope would be a big issue in the next election campaign. John, I want you to lead on this one. And Jean has certainly talked about this. Our, uh, you know, the, and the question I put to you is our federation and our federalism still capable of achieving big national products as we projects as we once were able to do in the past with starting with railways, pipelines, seaways, and just dealing with the internet, for example, when you were Minister of Industry. Can we still do that? Or what has happened that we seem to be stymied now? Well, I, I haven't given up hope on the Canadian Federation. I think I, we had a little glimpse of it during the pandemic, especially in the early days of extraordinary federal provincial cooperation with, uh, you know, Doug Ford saying very positive things about some federal liberal ministers and other, you know, good feelings back and forth. So I haven't, I'm not ready to give up hope, Colin. I think that, that um, uh, there are, there are historically at least have been two big functions for the prime minister of Canada. Uh, one has been national unity and the other has been managing the Canada-U.S. relationship. And the former was in its, you know, through much of our history was seen as how do we, how do we ensure that we keep the two founding groups as we referred to them in those days, the, you know, Quebec and the French Canadian reality uh, together with the rest of the country and the English Canadian reality. Well, it's more complicated than that today because the tensions that are that are complicating our federation are ones that are driven by uh, uh, east-west tensions, resources, resource ownership and exploitation, environmental policy, and then laterally to some degree policies emanating during the, during the pandemic. And I think that uh, uh, anyone who wants to be prime minister needs to take on the role of national healer and not be a national divider. And it remains to be seen how current and potential leaders rise to that challenge. But I'm hopeful that if they do, we can, we can once again reassert that sense of being Canadian. The Canadians have been very proud of their country historically um, we and, and I don't mean just during during hockey tournaments but but um, I think that we need to uh, basically draw a line under the frequency with which we issue national apologies to for things that were done in, inappropriately in the past and begin once again to reinforce the the many wonderful uh, characteristics of Canada and Canadians 
and be proud of Canada being the greatest country in the world. Which I think is still the case. Jean, you you know, devote a lot of effort to federal provincial relations, been premier and also served as deputy prime minister. Is the federation still capable of the big national projects that we do need that you've described? It is. There's no, we are. I mean, it's still, you know, our federal system works well. It's well suited for the country we have, the geography, the history, the, the diversity that we have. But I'm very worried, Colin. I, I'm rarely seeing the country as divided. And I see different forces pulling it in different directions. And I don't see a unifying force who's arguing to bridge the gap between the East and the West, for example. I don't hear that. I don't see it. And yet we have a lot in common. I'll give you an Alberta, Quebec example, because there's a lot of ill sentiment. There's a lot of bad sentiment in Alberta about the rest of the country. And, uh, and they, they just feel they're not listened to. They're not respected. They're not taken to any account. But, you know, when the trade debate happened in 1988, it was Quebec and Alberta that got that done, who voted in favor. Ontario voted against it. So, you know, if Alberta and Quebec get together on certain problems, but there's no one out there saying that, making the case for Canada. And this is a country that constantly needs to have that effort of bridge building. If we're not doing it, we're going backwards. Now, there's opportunities in some of the mishaps. There, recently, the Supreme Court of Canada invalidated a good part of the environmental, Federal Environmental Assessment Act, which I think they're totally right. There was a lot of overreach in that. And you'd think there'd be a great an opportunity for the federal government to say to the provinces, why don't we sit down together, figure this out on how we can make it not only work from our respective responsibilities, but make it faster. Permitting and the time, and time is the big issue here. How do we get things done? How do we, uh, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bit disappointed that no one's grabbed onto that to say, okay, here's an opportunity to make this federal system of ours work. And so I'm worried, I'm concerned. And because if this country doesn't receive or doesn't have that leadership that bridges the gap, uh, we'll go in the other direction. And we should never, if there's one lesson of the world in which we are in now, Colin, everything we've talked about, we should take nothing for granted. Who would have thought we'd be debating democracy in the United States 10 years ago? You'd say that to me, I'd say you're crazy. But here we are. And that we should not take Canada for granted. Peter, I want you to lead on this one because you've mentioned it earlier. You talked about us having both food and I'd say fertilizer. We've got energy. We can feed and fuel allies uh, while meeting our climate obligations. But how do we do it? Because we, we have these natural resources, you pointed out, but we seem unable to be able to bring projects through to conclusion. Yeah, Colin, you've crafted your your questions for this uh, session very well because they they do tend to meld together. Um, and when we talk about infrastructure, inevitably we have to talk about leadership. We have to talk about the ability to somehow find common cause. And uh, you know, at at the risk of of pumping anybody's tires here, having provincial premiers like. Uh, like Jean Charest, who have the bigger picture in mind that look beyond their provincial boundaries, that look beyond their own parochial or even partisan interests, uh, is a big part of getting to that better place that we all envision. I think our, our federal system is well suited, but it's now being exploited in terms of the divisions, much like we're seeing in the United States. And 
we tend to, as we're doing here, constantly reference what's happening south of the border um, and emulate both the best and the worst of what's happening there. And we, we seem to sometimes be one election cycle or less behind what is going on in, in America. But to come back to your question directly, you know, getting our infrastructure in place is a critical, absolutely undeniably critical part of prosperity. And that's what it, it, it comes back to. We, we talk about, you know, the economic crisis, the affordability crisis, uh, what's happening in terms of the price of everything, affordability for, for the average Canadian family is a, a preoccupation each and every day, how they're going to be able to pay for food and medicine and fuel and critical items and, and put money aside, uh, hopefully for their kids' education or for the betterment of their future and retirement. And yet without having the ability to export our great products, our natural resources, and, and, and I would include the other great natural resource that we have, and that's you know, young, educated, motivated people who want to stay in this country and, and make a life and have a career. And yet they are also being pulled away because they're, they're increasingly seeing a, a dim future here in terms of making a, a good living. And so Canada is desperately in need of, of a reset and, and a readjustment to these realities. And I hearken back to our earlier discussion about the, the, the incredible threat that is out there, the, the threat that used to seem so distant. You know, we were surrounded by water and the United States and that we had this idealistic sense of splendid isolation. That's gone. Uh, John referenced Russia being a neighbor. They are. They're, uh, they're just across the Arctic waters. They're making enormous investments in recapitalizing military bases. They're putting weapons in place. NATO uh, is, of course, an important institution, but so is NORAD. Uh, and, you know, I just read a report out of the Pentagon. And, and you know, I don't use this word uh, often, but it is absolutely scathing in terms of Canada keeping up uh, with the obligations that are necessary in terms of securing North America, but contributing meaningfully in the world. And so that's also part of how we get products to market. You know, defense is inevitably tied to our ability to meaningfully contribute, but also countries, particularly the United States, want to do business with a country they feel they can rely on and, and not have to, in fact, pick up the slack when it comes to uh, investments like the North. And, and, you know, I know we're Again, I'm I'm sort of intermingling some of these issues, but the Arctic, as Jean said, is uh, is both a massive vulnerability, but it's also the biggest opportunity. And and I would say one of the factors of unification, and this may be controversial, is our First Nations. I think that there is now uh, acceptance amongst all pro provincial leaders, acceptance amongst business leaders, and surely the federal government that the Aboriginal community has to contribute and, and be part of, be partners in projects like pipelines and ports and, uh, and I dare say it, military procurement. They, and they, they want to be part of it. That's the good news. So that the unification that we seek has to inevitably have uh, real practical contributions from our First Nations. I think it can help bridge the divide, frankly, between some of the tensions that exist 
between Quebec and the rest of the country on energy. And I think on national procurement, having our First Nations, which, by the way, is, is the fastest growing um, population in our country, also addresses some of the, the big issues of the, the need to build and to manufacture and to be able to have uh, an enormous boost to our economy by uh, procuring the things that we need right here in Canada before we you know, wring our hands and suck our teeth over what we're going to send abroad. We need to do a lot of that manufacturing right here. We saw it coming out of COVID and then it just seemed to disappear like the spring snow. John, Peter talks about our people. And of course, we have been a traditionally uh, an immigrant receiving country and I think it's served Canada extraordinarily well. I pointed to the fact that polling is showing that support for immigration has been declining. Uh, how do we sustain public support for something which really is integral to Canadian success story? Well, I think part of our success has been that, that uh, we've been able to accommodate people as they entered Canada. And I think that the wide publicity around shortages, uh, especially I'd say you mentioned a number of them in your introduction, but especially housing and, and health care uh, is causing people to be now a little bit more concerned. Um, I mean, it's, it's not complicated uh, mathematics to say if the that if the rate of household formation in Canada exceeds the rate at which housing units are being constructed, the price of housing will go up. That's like economics 101, you know, first week. Uh, so it, it's, it shouldn't be surprising that if we vastly increase, and there has been a very rapid increase in the total number of immigrants coming into Canada, um, while not making provision for their accommodation and for their healthcare needs, we're going to create tensions. In the case of healthcare, it's not a pricing tension or cost tension, it's an availability tension. And uh, finding, you know, finding medical professionals now is, you know, if you've got a doctor, you, you, you hope that you're older than your doctor so they don't retire on you because you might not be able to find another one. It's, it is, it is a, it's a grim situation. Now, part of that solution to this does lie, in fact, in immigration. That if we were making a greater effort at uh, both inviting and settling and accommodating by credentialing uh, professionals, both in, in the healthcare sector, but also skilled workers in the housing sector, uh, they could actually be helping to us to address some of these needs. You know, my, my acquaintances that are in the development industry say, you know, our problem in getting stuff built is not a lack of, not a shortage of land. There's lots of land. Uh, the problem is that we can't get workers. And if we do have workers, we, it, it, can, it takes forever. Most, many municipalities get permits to get things built. So uh, I'd say there are solutions and immigration could be part of the solution to that. Uh, certainly credentialing healthcare workers is something that's been talked about for many years. Um, and we still seem to require uh, people to go through, ex go to extraordinary measures, even though they're fully qualified in other European even jurisdictions. 
um, and we won't let them practice on uh, on human bodies that are Canadian. Um, so I, you know, I think those are the problems, and 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 there are some solutions. But I think the really worrisome thing that in your question, uh, Colin, is that if the mood turns against immigration, there's going to be part of that that's going to be ugly. It's not simply we need to take care of ourselves first. It becomes, in some cases, racial or or other forms of of of, uh, of discrimination start to pop up, and that's not something that we want to encourage in Canada. On the contrary, we've we've had a very peaceable society, and it's worked for us for a long time. We want to maintain those values. Sean, is this something that? Prime ministers need to sit down with premiers and work out because ultimately it's the provinces and cities that have to, where immigrants go to now. We, we have sort of a, a understandings, uh, you know, Quebec has taken a lead in this area, but it, would this be one way that we could work this out? Because as John points out, the problem becomes it could get ugly. Labor mobility should be Canada's great opportunity, Colin. You know, of all the countries in the world, our population is one that is the best disposed to seeing new people come in. As you point out quite correctly, that is changing, and it's changing rapidly. Issues around housing, around integration, and what's happening to the South. If you paid attention to what's been happening in the United States in the last few weeks, it's pretty scary. 12,000 people show up on a single day at the American border in the South. 12,000. That is going to come to Canada, by the way. We are going to very rapidly see the consequences of the overflow of what's happening in the United States with people coming through Canada. We're already seeing it and the government should get ahead of it. This is Canada's great opportunity to be the place in the world that figures out what labor mobility should be. I did an agreement with France, Quebec. This is Quebec, France, with the Sarkozy government a few years ago. It's the most advanced one on credentials. You're a doctor in Quebec, you're a doctor in France. You're an engineer in Quebec, you're an engineer in France. You're a lawyer in Paris. You're a lawyer in Quebec. I mean, and we do need a lot new lawyers, right? I mean, Peter <laughs> and John have confirmed that. <laughs> but here, here are the, the intelligent things we should do, and we should jump at that opportunity. But if we don't, if we're not ahead of it, we're going to be going through the same. And this is one of the biggest issues in this electoral year everywhere, in Europe, in the United States, in a number of jurisdictions. This is one of the most divisive issues. The key word again here is immigration has to rhyme with integration. You have policies to integrate people, A, and B, it has to be orderly, John. It cannot be chaos. If it's chaos, the public opinion will turn on a dime and it will make it impossible for uh, leaders to make the right decisions because they'll be running up against a sentiment of public opinion that's just going to say no. And that, for Canada, would be a disastrous outcome. Peter, the citizenship side of immigration, which doesn't always get a lot of attention, but did in the Harper government. I know Jason Kenney redid the citizenship guide to put the emphasis on what he saw as sort of Canadian values and virtues. Is this something that we have to do in order to sustain that public support for immigration? I think it's part. You know, it's a, it's a broader education, I think, that is going to allow Canada to cede what is sometimes increasingly stony ground um, to increase immigration. We do need 
uh, new Canadians. And, you know, I, at the risk of sounding defensive, my, my mother was an immigrant, my wife's an immigrant. We absolutely need the traditional influx uh, in our population for all kinds of reasons, including economic reasons that, that John and John have both touched on to get uh, those accommodations and accreditations in place is a big part of it, but it's like forestry. You know, the best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago. We we need to uh, start making much more proactive decisions around how to get the right people to country to build uh, the type of infrastructure, the type of professions, the type of country that we know uh, can finally start to reach our potential. We can't do it without uh, a robust immigration system. But, you know, out here in the hinterland in Atlantic Canada, what we have seen happening, and it's happened in other parts, is people come and then they leave. And we start to see increasingly uh, immigration build just our cities and, and not the, lar the larger part of our country. And that also, you know, touches on some of these issues like healthcare, as you said, where there's out migration even within the Canadian population that's happening. And that's that's of concern to certain regions. Again, I think premiers play a big part of it. It's not while it's a federal responsibility. I think you know I I would love to see a, a group of premiers, the entire uh, membership of of the, the you know the premiers come together and talk about this in in a more uh, detailed way as to how we address this uh, this growing concern and. You know, I, I come back again to the reference to the rising tensions in the country. Inevitably, we, we see these conflicts happening in the broader world and those conflicts playing out, you know, in Toronto in particular, uh, is alarming. It's jarring for Canadians to see the type of protests and, and violence and threats really start to seep into the culture of Canada. That's a massive concern and, and a destructive influence on Canadians and, and, and our way of life. And so it, it has to be measured. I am concerned, and, and this is not a partisan discussion, but when, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're elevating the number of, of new Canadians, including students, to the country, and they, they arrive and they can't find a home. They, if they're coming here and they can't work in their chosen profession, of which you know, in the case of, of doctors, in some cases, they've been practicing medicine for 30, 40 years and they, they arrive in Canada. And we've heard these stories, apocryphal stories that they're driving cabs or working in a sandwich shop. That's a terrible, uh, you know, statement that we have these underutilized skills in our country that we can't throw at the, the actual problems. And, you know, we, we even still have difficulty getting accredited between provinces again so it, that's part of the broader challenge as well but there's no question that immigration is going to be a thorny issue um you know when that election comes and it's often used you know for better or worse it's it's very politicized you know there's all kinds of accusations that are made about certain parties being pro this or anti that what mm -hmm. canadians want is you know practical thoughtful answers they they really don't want this sort of used as a cudgel to hit the other party uh, they want to see, well, what's your actual solution to this? Um, just elevating numbers is not going to do it. it. It has to be done in a much more calibrated way, in my opinion. Well, practical, thoughtful answers is what you've all provided listeners with today. Uh, my final question, and Peter, I'll let you lead on this. 
what are you reading or streaming these days? And second part, what do you recommend listeners read or stream to help them better understand the world we now live in? Peter. Um, Red Line, I find, is a very good podcast. Um, and I, I watched, it's a, it's a sort of a two or three part series, but it's called The World We Leave Behind, which is a fictional account, but it's it's very well done, although it's it's dark. But it's uh, it's worth uh, worth viewing. Julia Roberts and uh, Ethan Hawke are, are in this dramatization. The book that I uh, received for Christmas that I'm almost through is uh, is written by H.R. McMaster, and it's called Battleground. And it's a it's a discussion about obviously his time in the White House, his time as a as a leading soldier in uh, in the broader world. It's it's a very thoughtful, good book to get a grasp of. Uh, his perspective, uh, I, I highly recommend McMaster's book on uh, on leadership and on uh, on what he views are some of the big challenges in the 21st century. All right, excellent. Thanks, Peter. Red Line and McMaster's Battleground. Uh, Battleground. Jean, what are you reading or streaming? And what do you recommend people read to help them understand the world? Well, what I'm, I'm reading is a, a book by an author and a columnist who I like a lot, David Brooks of the New York Times, who I find to be very, very thoughtful. And he just wrote a, a, a book entitled How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And uh, I, I'm attracted to this book and to the author because I, I look at society in which we are in now and how we treat each other and and how the world is. And I think he offers a lot of very, very thoughtful insights on how we can uh, better uh, live with other people. And I highly, I'm into it. I'm halfway through it. And I highly recommend the book, uh, Colin. All right. David Brooks, How to Know a Person. He's yeah. also, I've watched him every Friday night on PBS half for years. And thank you, as you say, John, he is excellent. John, let me ask you what you're reading or streaming these oh. days. So I've been reading and I've been recommending all over the place uh, a book called How the World Really Works by Vaclav Smeal, who's a professor at the University of Manitoba. Um, and if you, if you want to understand what we need to think about in terms of addressing the climate crisis, you've got to read this book. It's, it's clear, it's well-written, it's scientific in its, in its base. Um, and uh, in some ways, uh, it's really uh, it's really set me back because you start to understand just how fully integrated uh, fossil fuels and their production is in the uh, maintenance of our lives on the planet in in 2024. So, uh, Schmiel, how the how the world really works, and if that's not depressing enough, and you want something lighter. I've been on my daily walks, which sometimes go over an hour. I've been listening to an absolutely wonderful work of fiction called Tom Lake, which I recommend because it's narrated by possibly my favorite actor in the world, Meryl Streep. Um, and if if you can, I mean, Meryl Streep could play a truck driver, and I'd find her believable. In this, in this, she plays an actress. So imagine Meryl Streep actually acting as an actress. And you've got an idea of how compelling this, uh, this audio book is. So I really strongly recommend it. 
All right, back to Smeal and Tom Lake, starring Meryl Streep, who we all enjoy. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. We were joined today by the Honorable Jean Charest, the Honorable Peter McKay, and the Honorable John Manley. You can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Calnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing the music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. 